Welcome, Resonate family and any other friends tuning in. We are glad to have you here. This summer, we are starting a series that is called The Story of God. This 12-week series covers the timeless saga of God's redemptive love, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. What is God's greater story that is unfolding throughout all of history? Each week, we will explore these questions and get into the depth and breadth of God's covenant with His chosen people, humanity's response, and the hope to be found in His story. Our prayer as we go through this series is that God's redemptive movement throughout history would inspire us to greater devotion, to love God and our neighbors on campus and in Seattle. Any of you uh, had a moment in your life that was something bad or sad or hard, painful that happened to you that in the moment you hated, but eventually with time you actually look back on and say, I'm glad that actually happened to me. Anybody have a, a moment or a story like that personally? Uh, for me, uh, it was 2008, 2009 when the recession hit and I had no job waiting for me out of college. So devastating to my career. Uh, and I was in this kind of soul searching process. But in that process, God disco- I, I discovered God in that process, discovered um, life changing community in that process, met my wife uh, in that process. And so just thinking about like what God had ordained and orchestrated in my life through a really painful, awful time ended up in the end being a, a much bigger, uh, greater uh, thing in my life. So um, today's story is going to, I think, hit on this theme where we see God uh, entering into someone's story, story of Joseph, and how God's working in Joseph's life. Uh, it involves lots of suffering and injustice and pain, but through it, God works a much bigger story through his life, and you see it happening through the whole story of God. So we're in Part, uh, let's see, part five today. So creation, fall, flood, Abraham, and then today we're hitting Joseph. Next week will be Moses and the Exodus and on and on through uh, to uh, our, our entire narrative this summer. So last week looked at Abraham and uh, Mike talked about how uh, God had kind of ordained his family to be the first kind of covenant that God established with his people to make a great nation. Uh, so that Abraham had to trust God even though he was 100 years old and had a baby uh, at 100 years old, so a pretty wild story. Um, so he had uh, multiple sons, but through the son Isaac is what God chooses to move, and his people was established through the, the line of Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has uh, 12 sons. Second to last son was Joseph. So this is Abraham, Abraham's uh, great-grandson. So Joseph is, uh, is one of 12 sons born to Jacob. So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37 and kind of walk through the story of Joseph and how, again, the question for us today is why, why does Joseph's story matter in the greater story of God? Why, there's only 12 parts, so why does Joseph get one of the 12 parts? We're going to see why in the story today, starting in Genesis 37. Uh, verse, I think, 1 says this, Joseph, a young man of 17, young man, was out tending the flocks with his brothers. They were all shepherds, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them, about his brothers. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. 
and he had made an ornate and colorful robe for him. And when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Got that older, younger sibling rivalry going on here, only to a pretty extreme degree, right? Can anyone relate here today? Younger siblings get all the cool stuff, the nice robes. Dad's favorite child, anybody? No? Older sibling, younger sibling. There's a serious case of rivalry and favoritism all kind of playing in this family. And it, it, it plays into uh, the story of Joseph in a serious way. And so one day they're all out in the field, again, tending to the flocks. And uh, the brothers conspire against Joseph to the point of wanting to kill him. But they decide instead to throw him in a pit. And then when some guys come by, to, uh, they're on their way to Egypt. They sell Joseph as a slave to these Midianite traders who are on their way to Egypt. As the, the, the Midianites uh, head into Egypt, they, sell, they, they sell him, resell him again to uh, some Egyptian officials. And so the brothers go back and tell their father Jacob that Joseph's been killed. Obviously, he's devastated. His favorite son's been killed, so he's crushed by it. Um, but Joseph actually is not killed. He's kept alive and is sold to Potiphar, uh, one of the, the high-ranking Egyptian officials. So Genesis 39... We see in verse 2, it says this, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. He lived in the house of his, his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. Went from being a slave to now being in charge of everything this Egyptian royal official owns. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So again, just an astounding level of trust that Joseph uh, develops in Potiphar, right? Just uh, this amazing, uh, you know, a Hebrew guy coming into this guy's house and now is entrusted with everything he has is, is amazing. God was ordaining this whole, this whole process. Now it says in verse 7, Joseph was well-built and handsome. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. This is like a desperate housewife's episode going on here, right? Like, she sees young man, well-built, handsome, hey, come to bed with me. And Joseph says, no, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So you kind of hear almost like, like an echo of Genesis chapter 2, where God has given Adam and Eve everything except this one tree. You have everything, right? But, but, but this one thing. So Joseph does not follow uh, what Adam and Eve does. And instead, chooses the, the better way, does not take the bait, does not take the deception, and instead upholds his conviction to obey God. And says, how then could I do such 
a wicked thing and sin against God. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, trying to get him to continually come to bed with her, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. So in the same room with her, perhaps. And so Potiphar's wife is so offended by his refusal, continual refusal, that she wants to take revenge on him, makes a story up to her husband that Joseph's the one who made the advance towards her. Now, obviously, he gets mad, throws Joseph in prison, and now he has been, uh, had this second kind of injustice done towards him. So first, sold into slavery by his brothers, now thrown in prison for a crime he did not commit. And so at this point, I don't know about you, but I am like, if I'm Joseph, I am like upset. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing well. Like, God, what are you doing to me? I, I've, I've only done nothing but obey you, and all I've gotten in return is this like suffering and injustice. First, my brothers desert me. Now I'm serving time for a crime I didn't actually commit. It's not going well for me, right? But Joseph is faithful through it all. Shortly after this, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker were thrown in prison with him. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know why a baker is tossed in prison. Like, talk about a high-stakes bakery job. Right? You make your, like, you get your measurements wrong, and you offend the king so bad. Eventually, he cuts his head off and impales him on a pole. So, insane, like, high-stakes bakery job. Um, I, I can't even, like, go there in my mind. But, so, cupbearer and baker get tossed in prison. They both have dreams when they're in prison. And Joseph can interpret their dreams. And the cupbearer has this dream in Genesis 40, verse 9, says this, So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream and said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in his hand, in my hand. I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. What's this dream mean, Joseph? Joseph says, The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, when you get out of here and you, it, things go well for you, remember me and show kindness to me. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I don't belong here. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon, in prison. So he's saying, hey, when this dream comes true, you get out of here. Don't forget me. Mention this whole thing to Pharaoh. The cupbearer is like, I got you. If this comes true, this is crazy. I got you for sure. Sure enough, three days goes by. Pharaoh pulls him out of prison and he totally forgets about Joseph in his joy or in his happiness or whatever. He's like so overcome with that. He forgets all about Joseph. And Joseph now spends two more years in prison. His third kind of injustice is being forgotten by this cupbearer. The worst, man. We had a deal, man. I interpreted your dream, gave you a favorable thing, and now you've forgotten about me. But two years goes by and Pharaoh has his own dream that no one can interpret. And so this kind of causes the light bulb to come on in the, the cupbearer's mind. Oh yeah, oh yeah, there's a guy. Now that you mention it, Pharaoh, when I was in jail, 
a dude, a Hebrew guy in jail, interpreted my dream that came to be. So you should definitely go get him out of prison and ask him, because he's the only one I know who can actually interpret this dream. So Pharaoh goes and gets Joseph, and Joseph uh, interprets the dream, and he, he basically tells the Pharaoh, your dream means that through the power of God, and prophetically you can say that in, in the coming days will be seven years of abundance. So rain and crops are going to grow abundantly, followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph advised that the Pharaoh set someone up in charge to prepare the nation the next 14 years to do this. And so Pharaoh says, all right, you know what? You do it. You interpreted the dream. You're the one I'm going to put in charge of this. So out of jail and now like second in command is now is Joseph's new status. So Genesis 41, 38 says this. So Pharaoh asked them, his, his people, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? He is recognizing that God's hand is on this man. Joseph has the power of God in him. So Pharaoh says to him, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and so wise as you. Therefore, you shall be the one in charge of my palace. All my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger, dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in the royal chariot, second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So, lo and behold, seven years of plenty comes. Joseph is storing up these reserves of crops and grain and, and uh, all this food. And so then the famine hits. And not only in Egypt, but like the entire region now is experiencing this famine, this drought and famine. So as the drought and famine hits, Jacob back in Canaan says, he's saying, we're going to die here unless you go to, he heard about there being food in Egypt. So he sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain and food. So the sons go to Egypt and again, lo and behold, they buy their grain and food from Joseph himself. Joseph is the one who they meet. They don't know it's him. He sees it's them. And it's a kind of a long story here. You go back and read it. There's three chapters that kind of unpack this like kind of interesting encounter where Joseph is kind of in disguise and is helping his brothers, giving them food and money. And so at some point, though, he cannot take it any longer and begins to reveal himself to his brothers and say, and he, he wants to help show them, this is who I am. I'm not dead anymore. I'm here. You'll never believe what happened. And so Genesis 45, verse 4 says this, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Keep that verse in your back pocket. God sent me ahead to preserve you as a remnant on earth 
to save you by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. God was ordaining this whole process. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God's made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. So what we see happening in this story is now Jacob, his whole family, moves into Goshen, a really amazing, lush area of the Nile River Delta in Egypt. And so for the next couple hundred years, their family grows into a mighty nation. And so you start seeing the promise of Abraham starting to become a real thing, coming to fruition. You see God's people growing and thriving in the area of Goshen, all ordained and orchestrated through the life of Joseph. Amazing story, right? You can never have written this story, made this story up. It's a story only written by God. But you do see in this story, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, in the Noah story, this kind of theme, this motif throughout the Bible where we see this three-part theme of covenant, deliverance, and a remnant. Those three words you see happening in the story of Noah, the story of Abraham, the story of Joseph as well. So you see Joseph himself saying, God has sent me ahead of you. He established a relationship, a covenant with me. He would not leave me or forsake me, was with me, delivered me, brought me here to then deliver you and save a remnant for himself. God's people he would preserve. The the promise made to Abraham has been preserved through the life of Joseph. And so the story of of Joseph does not only, I think, continue to reveal this, this first motif, but it also reveals a second motif, and it's this, that God builds his kingdom through suffering servant leadership. That's the big idea today, that God... We see this theme all throughout the Bible, that God builds his kingdom through suffering servant leadership. In Joseph's life, he says again, what others, what you meant for evil and harm, God meant for good. He says, God's the one who brought me here. You think you brought me here, but God is the one who brought me here and precisely used all that suffering to bring deliverance to not only myself, but to many others as well, to save lives, to bring flourishing, to bring blessing. Next week, we're looking at uh, Moses. And Moses continues the same kind of motif of suffering servant leadership. The book of Hebrews talks about that Moses chose to identify with the people of God and their suffering and their um, their wanderings, chose not to associate and stay in the pleasures of Egypt, but chose to instead be with his people, to choose the reproach of Christ, to suffer with God's people in the wilderness, to lead them as a servant through the desert to the promised land. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the prophets doing the same thing, the same kind of suffering servant leadership. The prophet Jeremiah, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, Right? But God used his life 
to preserve the nation. In exile, God continues to preserve a remnant through the servant leadership of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the same kind of theme all the way to the New Testament with Jesus. Comes as the Son of God sent to earth, takes a form of a man, flesh, came to serve, not to be served, right? Suffered and died in order to bring us from our sin and preserve a remnant of God's people. You see the whole theme working through all these lives, right? All these stories are all kind of woven together, the same theme. Jesus is the ultimate picture of suffering servant leadership. And as he dies and comes back from the dead, he now says, all right, now your turn. My people, continue the story. You've seen it happen all throughout the Old Testament. Now, in my name, in my same way, do the same. So he says to the disciples, like in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you also. So the call to be a Christian, the call to be a disciple, is, a, is one of persecution, perhaps, of, of suffering, of hate, of experiencing the kind of life that Jesus experienced. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, when he first kind of comes in, in contact with Jesus, knocked off his horse, right? Goes blind for a couple days. Jesus reveals himself and says, This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul helps establish the church, extends it well beyond Jerusalem, extends God's deliverance and saving power through his own life. So Paul experiences all kinds of suffering, imprisonment, beatings, getting stoned, beaten with sticks. I mean, he is, he is going through the ringer, right? The call to be God's people may not mean getting beaten with sticks or imprisoned, but there is certainly a theme of suffering servant Leadership. So I want to throw a question out to you guys today. It's this. Why did God design it this way? Why does God choose to build his kingdom through suffering servant leadership? So take, take a moment to talk to your neighbor with you right now to at, try to answer this question. Why does God, why has God designed this this way? Why, why this story of Joseph? Why Moses? Why Jeremiah, Jesus, the disciples of Paul? And for us, why has God designed his kingdom to work this way. Take a minute or so and discuss that with someone next to you. Totally, yeah. Again, again the idea that we, th we think we, you change the world through the, op the inverse of this, right? You, you've changed the world through power, through you know, strength, through uh, leadership that, that elevates yourself and helps tell other people what to do and so there's authority in that, right? So when Jesus comes in a different form, a different way of saying, you know, no, actually, the Son of Man is going to serve, not come to be served. I'm going to do this differently. And they wanted him to, if you're the, really the Messiah, like you're going to overthrow the Roman government and the power structures and have that kind of authority, right? He's like, not quite. It's going to be a different kind of authority and power and you're not going to like it, maybe at first, right? So the idea of, suffering, sacrificial servant leadership is, is, God, is God's way. 
And so again, the church sometimes does not want to fully embrace this and say, well, what if we kind of take part of this and part from the world and kind of mix it together and see what can be maybe a compromise. Um, but in the end, God is choosing us to follow his way and his leadership. So I think uh, um, you guys already said some great thoughts today. That Not only does this, does this make God's power all the more impressive, right? Because we depend on his power for that. But also, I think suffering makes us sa- uh, safer investments. So like a, a heart that's been purified through trials and suffering and pain um, now is able to, I think, handle a greater outpouring of God's blessing, God's power. So when Joseph goes through all the trials, all of the suffering and injustice, and yet says, no, I will not disobey God. God continues to be my God. I will trust him. That, that's a kind of character, a kind of heart that God now bestows like more power than anyone else in Egypt. All the power, all the blessing, all the money, all the stuff, all the resources, he's already proven through his integrity, his character, his perseverance, that he is a man trustworthy with God's investment. So God, I think, makes us safe investments sometimes through proving us genuinely trusting of him through suffering, through pain, through loss, through injustice, right? Through injustice. So, Second question is this, what holds us back from living this way? Why do we try to avoid or bypass suffering servant leadership? I think the answer is somewhat straightforward, somewhat simple, uh, but here's, I think there's three reasons why we don't, and this is kind of connected to the world, again, does not only say no thanks to this, it scoffs at this. The world says, this, is, this way of leadership, this way of living is too humiliating for any self-respecting person. Who would actually choose a suffering servant life? That's not the, way I, not, not, not the life I want. It's too weak to make any measurable difference in the world. You can't possibly change the world this way. And it's too costly to any personal aspirations or personal justice, I feel, right? This, this way of life, Joseph's story, the Jesus story, the, the, the story of God when it comes to suffering servant leadership is no, uh, no uh, life I want, what the world says, right? It's too humiliating, too weak, too costly. And yet, this is exactly what happens in the gospel, right? We see Jesus displaying God's love through great cost to himself, through a humiliating death on the cross, and through his servant leadership, God opens up a way for us to know him. God brought eternal blessing through his sacrifice, and we're called to follow his way, follow his life, to lay our lives down for others the way Christ has done so for us. So I want to end with this last thought here. It's this, don't always pray the suffering away. It might just be the very thing God's going to use to do something bigger with your life. So... Potentially right now, you're going through something. It could be physical, emotional, relational suffering. It could be injustice. It could be pain. It could be loss. I'm not sure what it is. Or it could be tomorrow or next year. You're going to go through something that you're going to hate in the moment and say, God, what are you doing to me? Take this away from me. Heal this right now. Remove this from my life right now. And sometimes God says, 
No. Not right now, maybe. Sometimes he does. But sometimes God is going to use suffering to do something bigger with your life. In your life and perhaps in the lives of others. So my prayer is that we be people that we trust God enough that when suffering comes, we say, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus, cling to him with everything I have, even so good times, bad times, knowing that he's good and even suffering can be a part of his plan. That sounds weird and counterintuitive and like, I'm not sure I believe that some days, but like we have to believe this to be true based on Joseph's story and throughout the entire story of God. So I want to pray for us today and ask God to enter into our hearts hearts and lives as we process this together. So let's pray. God, today we we recognize that um, the story of Joseph is is compelling. It's it's it's, it's inspiring um, at a distance, but we we often don't want that story to be our story. We don't want to experience necessarily prison or uh, getting abandoned, getting forgotten about. We do sometimes desire the the robe and the the power and the kingdom and the resources, but not the suffering. So I I pray God today you would deepen our faith. Right now, where there's someone or people in the room who are currently going through a trial a pain or a loss or a suffering of some kind, God, remind them that you are with them. You've not left them. You've not abandoned them. You're right with them, God. Would you meet them in the suffering, in the pain, in the loss today? Remind them that you're writing a bigger story. And through that story, God, you may just reveal your saving power to others. Would that be true of us, God? Deepen our faith, deepen our perseverance and our character, and may we follow Jesus, his example. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.